Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. Never was the world so wicked as it is now. Everywhere people seem to swear, blaspheme and drink too much. One only had to see the aftermath of the town fair and it looked like some battle had been fought. Here lies one man, there another. If this sounds like a Daily Mail report on a busy Saturday night in Newcastle, Liverpool or Manchester, it isn't, but you're on the right track. This is the England of the early 17th century, the years between the death of Elizabeth I and the horrors of the Civil War, the beginnings of a century when the country will be convulsed by religious hatreds and transformed by trade science and new political ideas, when it would execute its own king, become a republic and then change its mind. It's all documented in dazzling style in The Blazing World, a new history of revolutionary England by the Oxford historian Jonathan Healy. And what struck me on reading the book was how many of these themes are still with us today. England's fatal idea of its own specialness, the feral power of new media, the endless confrontation between austere roundheads and hedonistic cavaliers, and of course, the culture wars. It is as if we can't escape them. So was the 17th century the time when modern England and modern Britain were created? To answer that, Jonathan Healy is here with me today. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome to The Bunker. Hi, it's lovely to be on. Thank you for having me. We'll get into just why this is called The Blazing World a little bit later, because it is a strange and fascinating story. Why write a new history of this period now? My main reason was that it's a great story. It's one that people have a sort of vague familiarity with. They they kind of know that in the middle of the 17th century, there was this civil war, which sort of just happened because of reasons that people are a bit fuzzy about. And it was between two different sides, one of whom was kind of, you know, flamboyant cavaliers with lots of hair, and the other was kind of dour roundheads uh, who cancelled Christmas. But the kind of deeper understanding of that period, it just doesn't seem to be there in, in a kind of wider audience. Um, so I wanted to tell that story to a new audience. It's not, I mean, it's it's not a new story, but it's one that I think has been slightly kind of cooped up in the academic texts, really. And and this is very much not an academic text. It's an attempt to to make it um, make it entertaining. Yes, I was ashamed at how little I knew of of this, and I, I felt rather let down by the British education <laughs> system because my understanding of it was was literally uh, Cromwell, Charles the First, a beheading, and maybe some Samuel Pepys. That's about it. But the depth and what what actually went on is absolutely astonishing. The recurring motif is this concept of the skimmington, a kind of English bacchanal where, where the world would be turned upside down. Men would wear women's clothing, they'd get drunk, they'd invade churches. And this is not just a motif in what you write, but there's a little device of a, of a church turned upside down, which punctuates the, punctuates the chapters, which I loved. Where did this notion of the world turned upside down become so potent, and particularly at this time? Well, I mean, it's a it's a kind of cross European thing, and it, it's uh, we're, um, we've just had Pancake Day, and that's uh, sort of part of it. It, it. you know goes back to this uh, idea of Carnival and, and Lent, and part of the the sort of fun of that was that in this period of Carnival, you could. Um, basically say things that you couldn't normally say. So you could um, criticise those in authority and you could insult people in positions of power. But of course, you know, it, it, what then happens is it, it, everything goes back to goes back to normal. And it's a sort of, um, it's quite an interesting motif that people use in this period as a way of criticising um, those in power. And the, uh, the book uh, starts with this uh, example in a church in, in um, on the edge of the Lake District in uh, what was then Lancashire. Um, and it's basically a bunch of Catholics who sort of go into a church and have a 
a cross-dressing wedding as a way of mocking the Protestants. And what they're doing is they're saying, well, you know, these these Protestants have turned the world upside down. We're going to turn it back uh, back the right way up. And of course, that then becomes a sort of uh, a motif in in the Civil War because people are, are starting to argue for really quite radical, transformative social change in ways which, to the sort of the conservative royalists, is quite worrying. And they sort of say, well, you know, okay, fine. It, it's just a bit of carnival. It's just going to um, it, it's just a sort of you know uh, a short term thing, and things are going to go back to normal uh, eventually. But um, but th- then of course you know the question is whether uh, that is um, it becomes a vehicle for something more transformative, something bigger, something um, more lasting. Yeah, I mean I, I'm I'm reading this and I'm thinking the great ignored and left behind sort of rush out and overturn order multiple times. This is Brexit. It's a, you know, the same, the same impulses, and perhaps, and I, because of the nature of this podcast, we tend to see Brexit everywhere, you know, under the bed and hiding behind chairs. But it, it did make me think. This is the, the you know, these are the roots of of that impulse of to, to you know, to almost have a kind of a, like a political bacchanal where the rules are, are torn up. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there are also uh, a number of moments uh, in this period where basically events kind of push things in directions that no one really expected, and then suddenly the political nation, if you like, is is having to deal with the consequences of that. Um, there is, I mean, <laughs> well, the um, I mean, th- obviously, this book was written under the shadow of of uh, what happened yes. in, in 2016, and there, and it, and I'm ve- I'm very very keen that it's not a it's not a Brexit book. I think there's a there's a bit of a a tendency amongst historians at the moment writing for a general audience to sort of try and score points in the in in the, the political world and it's very much not a book about that but it ha- but it's also um it's also a world i was i was describing i was writing about this world where you know, people are kind of petitioning and pressing outside Parliament. They're having sort of large street protests in an attempt to kind of push the political agenda. In attempt by an, an attempt by ordinary people to uh, change the political agenda in ways that were not really possible a hundred years before. Um, and I think that kind of you know, I, when I write about big kind of um, marches outside Westminster and Whitehall, it, it, I was writing that with the big sort of you know Brexit protests going on. Um, so. <laughs> I'm sure there's a I'm sure there's an influence there somewhere. I do um I talk a bit about a guy called William Petty who is this kind of um fascinating character because he he manages not just to be a sort of a complete player. He's got this kind of um, natural daughter who um he uh, sired by um by sleeping with an actress who looks just like him. He's also the most famous statistician of the period and um so it's an unusual combination but there's one <laughs> bit where um, slightly unfortunately he sort of says oh you know in the future we will settle all of our differences by by referendums and and what that will mean is that there'll be n- there will be no scope after that for any debate and factions um so it's you know it, it's uh, it, it's a moment when this kind of stuff is being thought about in 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 new ways i really want to work with that guy his <laughs> advice you know you're right we shouldn't see history through that kind of lens you know we often hear poli- uh, historians say you know elizabeth the first she was very much the kim kardashian of her day you know that sort of attempting to see from <laughs> I, I, I hate, hate that. Well. I hate that. Absolutely hate but it. Yeah, yeah. That said, the resonances were incredible. You're, you're writing about the Protectorate, the era when um, yeah. when Cromwell is Lord Protector, and you're very good on popular culture, including the pr- Protectorate era, era dances, including the Bobbing Joe <laughs> and Punk's Delight, which just made me think of Malcolm McLaren, yes. who, was, who was obsessed with this period. <laughs> oh, was he? I did. I, oh, he loved I didn't this, know yeah. that. No. 
Uh, well, so uh, a punk is um, uh, is basically a kind of 17th century slang for a prostitute, which I assume is where ultimately where the uh, yeah. where the music uh, comes from. But um, but yeah, and it's great. And and, and that says John John Playfair, isn't it? The uh, the guy, and he's sort of writing that and producing all these dances and writing them down in in print, and he's selling them outside a church in the middle of London in the Inns of Court, and it's just this kind of fast, fantastic way of just annoying the government because it's ironic because Charles I is very very, very civilized and doesn't believe in any sort of, you know, excessive jollity or anything like that. But when he's um, beheaded and and you basically get the sort of cavaliers who are basically sort of out on their ears, just sort of, um, you know, just grumbling about everything. One of the things that they, they do is they decide to become this kind of vision of just kind of uh, massive debauchery um, as a way of just annoying the hell out of the Puritans who are in government. They really yeah. are trying to irk the Puritans. But I think also the fact that they're doing it in print as well, they're doing it as part mm. of a, a really kind of vibrant print culture. What you have in this period is you have print maturing. Now, print is quite old by the 17th century. It's about 150 years old in in, in Europe, um, but it's maturing and, and you're getting periodical newspapers, you're getting cartoons, you're getting, you know, really kind of punchy political pamphlets and it's a bit like the way that um the internet has matured in the last sort of 10 15 years with the advent of social media yeah i mean uh, what struck me as well was because this is the period when the coffee shop becomes the place where the newspapers are read Mm. everybody's smoking tobacco and reading these these bulletins but the the new arrival of uh, the caranto is the newspapers were known as weren't they sort of these these circulars they begin with fake news and lie and rumor and libel and calumny. <laughs> it's like that as if what I got from the part of what I got from the book was like the natural state of England is riot and the natural state of our media is making stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely, and uh, but it's but it's more than just that. I mean, um, I mean, obviously there is uh, there is quite a lot of what mm. we would call fake news going around, but there's also a sort of exposés. I mean, there's this kind of great moment where um, after the Battle of Naseby, the letters that Charles I has been writing, you know, to his politicians and to his wife, are captured, and then of course, you know. As you would today, you, you you publish them as an expose. It's sort of you know kind of WikiLeaks of the time. Um, and it's WikiLeaks. <laughs> no, it's you're Wiki- doing it again. <laughs> I do. I am. Is that even a current reference? I mean, that's I so, it's such a long time ago now that that's a that's a historical reference. I think. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and it's and it's you know and. Uh, there's this whole kind of thing about um, about gender imbalance in the 17th century that that both sides in the civil war are basically saying that the other is kind of overturning the natural order of things and and the royalists uh, basically say well the the Earl of Essex the parliamentarian general he's a cuckold not helped by the fact that he actually was quite famously outed as impotent in the 1610s in a really kind of uh, really kind of massive you know kind of famous case and so they have these banners the, the royalists have these banners it's you know with a again with a penis is sort of ready to use it <laughs> unlike the Earl of Essex kind of thing but on the other hand the the uh, the parliamentarians are sort of saying well you know Charles I he's just ruled by his wife he's a failed patriarch and and there's these kind of bits in these in when these letters are published they sort of say oh you know look at how he's generous and nice to his wife you know uh, what what does that tell you about him if he can't even rule his wife how can he hope to rule the kingdom but it's again it kind of goes back to this idea of the world turned upside down this kind of cosmic mm. disturbance that's going on at the time and the way people weaponize this i think it would be awful if you lived in times when politics was determined by i don't know uh wildly sexually incontinent ruler who had more kids than, <laughs> that would be awful wouldn't it we wouldn't know how to deal with it
I like the fact that uh, I, I spotted when the when the, the poor law in the restoration years seems to be the genesis of nobody wants to work anymore. The bullets are there. People are lazy <laughs> these days in 16 whatever. Yes. Um, you know, the, these recurrent <laughs> things that we never seem to be able to escape from. But I did. I also was fascinated about in this same period, late restoration, uh, it sees the arrival of conspicuous consumption. I think uh, you, you find a quote, mm. the cobbler is always endeavouring to live as well as the shoemaker and the shoemaker as well as any in the parish. And thus do the people grow rich. It's upward mobility. Yeah, um, I think you're, you're testing my um, you're testing my uh, my precise remembering there, but I think that's Nicholas Barbon, who is actually the son of a really famous Puritan, praise God, Barebone, who was uh, someone in the 1650s who used to sort of stand outside his house in Fleet Street and harangue the the crowds going down Fleet Street and the Strand. But Barbon's really interesting because you know by that point they're sort of saying. Um, well, actually, I mean, not, not everyone's saying it, but there's there's a there there are a group of people who are saying um, actually buying stuff, conspicuous consumption, um, competing with your neighbours as to who can wear the flashiest clothes um, is a good thing. Greed is good, <laughs> basically. That's what they're that's what they're saying because it makes people work hard, and and at the same time, you've got this. I mean, I think that I mean I started out as a as a poor law specialist. I wrote this kind of extremely worthy doctoral thesis on the poor law in Lancashire in uh, the seventeenth century. Basically, you sort of start the century where there's these kind of incredibly serious problems of poverty. You know, famines are still happening, and. I mean, my slightly simplistic take on it is that basically Parliament, the state says, OK, what we're going to do about this is we're going to tax everyone and we're going to redistribute some money to the poor. That should help. And it does. And over the course of the 17th century, the, the, the very, very poor in particular get a much better standard of living because they are being supported by by the organs of the state. And of course, what this does is it means that those, uh, you know, the, it, it creates a backlash amongst people who are basically saying, well, do you know what, what this is doing is it's making all they're just not willing to work and they're having loads of children and it is yes. very it's very similar to the sort of stuff that uh that you used to see in um in you know the sort of murkier ends of the of the british press in in you know in the 90s and and you know well, in the last 25 years and probably yes. forever it's you know it's the same thing yeah yeah well, it really and is it really is it really is who, who, possibly you know the the best known of all of this century is because guy fawkes um, you know, mm. as, as become an archetype. I want to know how is it that that this, but effectively, a, a a religious terrorist, you know, pro pro Roman, pro Catholic, attempting to achieve political goals through violence. How did he become a symbol of anti-establishment protest? Because there was no greater establishment than the Catholic Church at the time. Well, I think I mean by 1605, the Catholics are obviously sort of out on their ear. But I think I think what it is really is it's a simple reflection of the fact that people today have a distrust in MPs, and fundamentally, what Guy Fawkes was trying to do was blow up MPs. And and I think you know that I mean for me as a historian, you have to really kind of feel these people, and you sort of think, well, do you know what? Actually, the mass murder of people, even if you happen to disagree with them politically, is is a bad thing. Um, but uh, mm, but broadly, bro broadly yes. speaking, a bad thing. But I think at that kind of distance, people today have kind of it, it's lost that sort of um, it's lost yeah. that violence. I think it's lost that it's lost the viscerality that it would have had at the time. And I think again, sort of one of the things I am trying to do in this book is to sort of bring back a little bit of that and and you know think get us to kind of humanize these people and think about them as um, real people who are making real intelligent 
usually decisions at the time. <laughs> um, we, you know, we think in a very, very different way to them. And some of the things they do are completely abhorrent. Um, but they are humans just like we are and, and, and try and kind of think about it like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't, I, again, I don't want to be one of these kind of po-faced uh, academics who sort of says, well, do you know what? Wearing a Guy Fawkes mask is terribly problematic because did you know he, he was actually a mass murderer? Mm. But I think that distance in time has basically kind of sanitized him in a way that would have been unintelligible, I think, to uh, to people at the time. It does drive me up the wall when you hear people today say, oh, well, of course, Guy Fawkes, you know, the only honest man ever to enter <laughs> Parliament. <laughs> hey, are you, what the hell are you talking about? The guy who wanted to perpetrate yeah, a massacre. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I dare say that since then, there's been one or two more dependable people. Also, I... I love the fact. I love the fact that they you show the ineptitude of the gunpowder plot. They weren't actually very good at it, and also the fact that a couple of days before, you, you know, the recurrent story that's you know people were warned the day before nine eleven mm. that you know they'd been nice to to a Muslim cleaner and they were warned not to go into the the twin towers because something was going to happen tomorrow. This actually happens in the gunpowder plot, doesn't it? Somebody warns an acquaintance. Yeah, uh, I mean, they send an anonymous letter which someone uh, opens in a dinner party in Shoreditch, which is a very different different kind of image in uh, 1605 than it would be today and uh, yeah and uh, you know there's it's never been quite uh, it's never been established um, without reasonable doubt who it was but it seems that basically one of the plotters was warning a relative because they mm. knew that this was going to be um, or they thought that this was going to be a, a a massive kind of you know death event. Apparently, um, apparently the actual gunpowder in the gunpowder plot had already set. I mean, this is science way beyond my way beyond my ken. But the um, the the gunpowder had already separated out, so there was virtually oh. no chance of it ever actually blowing up. But uh, but yeah, I mean, they they didn't know that. They thought that this was going to um, cause mass death and of the House of Lords as well, because it would have been the the opening of Parliament, so the the Lords and the Commons would have been together, and the King and the Royal family as well or a lot of the royal family and the, you know the judges and and you know ev everyone really i remember at school doing a lesson i had a great history teacher and we did a sort of conspiracy theory lesson about the gunpowder plot was it all was it all uh, basically organised by Robert Sissel? Uh, and uh, and I think I probably, you know, I was 12. So I came to the conclusion that absolutely, yeah, no, it, was, it was definitely a kind of, you know, government conspiracy. Um, I'm much mm. less convinced of that now uh, than I was when I was 12. But yeah, I mean, it's a very dangerous thing. It's a very sinister plot, actually. And it, it conditions the whole period because throughout the period, the political nation are constantly worried about um, Catholic conspiracy theories, so much so that you know the Great Fire of London is blamed on Catholics. Even the even the regicide gets blamed on Catholics, which is just bizarre. They pro they probably did it with some special plan behind it, didn't they? That's the way yes. conspiracies work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many things. I mean, we, there are countless things we could get into that we don't have time for. You know, uh, the the plague, uh, which you paint very vividly in a, in, a, in a in a manner that chillingly reminded me of the early days of COVID. Um, you know, the <laughs> you could probably guess when I wrote that bit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a, yes, it was you, the spirit was clearly upon you. Um, yes. the, the endless kind of contention between Scotland and England for, you know, how is the how is the the rule going to be settled? And of course, the Great Fire, which you just mentioned. But I wanted to ask you. I mean, obviously, you're steeped in this stuff. As you put this together, were there, were there things that surprised you, or, or aspects of of the of the, the great changes in in English history in this time that perhaps you hadn't expected to uncover? 
I think the thing that probably I was most surprised about was the sheer knowledge and sophistication of ordinary people involving themselves in politics. And I think that's the thing that really kind of still jumps out at me about this period in that there's a sort of bit of an assumption, a, a kind of Monty Python assumption that people in the distant past, uh, particularly ordinary people, were just sort of, you know, mudslinging peasants. Um, mm. And and that really isn't the case. What, what, what you have in the 17th century is you have... Uh, ordinary folk who think very intelligently about religion, about the law, about the constitution, um, about, um, you know, social issues. Uh, and, you know, it's men and women, it's children, um, it's the young, the old. I'm not saying that there aren't plenty of ignorant people in the past, just as there are today. But the sophistication of just ordinary people in a time when, you know, media communication was so sparse. I mean, it was getting more impressive, but it was still so sparse. It really is remarkable. And, and I think there's, you know, there's no... There's no better testament to that than the moment in the 1640s and the 50s when you get these kind of radical groups who are made up of fundamentally just pretty ordinary people who are drastically rethinking um, the world, thinking, rethinking religion, rethinking society, rethinking society and, um, you know, the levelers and also the Quakers, people like that. Um, it's just gen- genuinely just astonishingly impressive, actually. Well, let's talk about the title, The Blazing World, because this in itself is a fascinating um, story. And I I will confess, I only know of it through the comic book, Alan Moore and Kevin (laughs) O'Neill's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where The Blazing World, which you will explain to us in a moment, is actually brought to life uh, by these great comics artists. But tell us, tell the listeners, what is it? The title is basically a homage to a book uh, published by the Duchess of Newcastle, um, Margaret Cavendish, um, called The Description of a New World Called The Blazing World. And it's basically this kind of very weird proto-science fiction about a lady who gets who gets kidnapped on the high seas, escapes, and then goes to the North Pole, as you would. And at the North Pole, she finds, as you would, another another world which is attached to the to our world. And so she goes there and it's the world that she discovers uh, and then becomes empress of. Uh, and it's a world uh, where um you know everything is kind of up for up for grabs um there's new uh, scientific endeavors which are really kind of destabilizing things um there's also things like kind of you know flying weapons and stuff like that um and eventually she uh, she sends for the soul of uh, none other than the author margaret cavendish and then they they go and have this kind of platonic relationship uh, which eventually ends with the the protagonist getting a sort of an alien invasion force from the blazing world and taking it to to our earth and then basically kind of um, giving victory in battles to Britain. Um, So it's just, I mean, it's just an incredibly vivid, incredibly weird, quite obtuse, actually, quite very difficult to to get a handle on. I think deliberately so. Um, Imagine a piece of imaginative literature. And it's, you know, often described as one of the earliest pieces of science fiction. And the way that the reason I sort of picked it for this book is, A, it's a great title. And B, it really does describe uh, a society which is uncertain about itself. And it's projecting that uncertainty into the way it thinks about uh, the universe. Um, You know, it's thinking about science. It's thinking about our place in the universe. But also, I like the fact that virtually everyone in this period is just a profoundly ambitious ambiguous person and 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 margaret cavendish is no um uh, exception she is you know 
a sort of proto-feminist, I think, uh, in, in some ways a kind of proto-eco-feminist because she's sort of problematizing the idea of um, colonialism and exploitation of the natural world. But she's also a horrendous snob. I mean, she she comes from a, <laughs> a, a very sort of, you know, strictly royalist background and she thinks that, you know, what's gone wrong in the last 30 years is that ordinary people have developed opinions and and all these kind of things. So she's just so ambiguous. And, and you know, I, I, I kind of, uh, you sort of love her and you sort of hate her as you do with virtually every figure in this period so it, it she she really kind of captures that ambiguity it's it's a period where it's very hard to look at it and see um heroes and villains it's it's all just much more complicated than that it's very morally ambiguous so one final question because we could literally talk about this all day but i wanted to ask you one particular thing why did cromwell's revolution fail could we really have had an English Republic since the 1640s if uh, Cromwell hadn't blown it, as it were? I mean, it, it's a perennial question. And I, I I like to sort of think about Cromwell as being the the sort of first stage of the restoration, really, because what happens in 1649 is so profoundly shocking. And then you've got this explosion in um, popular radicalism. And then the, the political class basically want to then put the lid back on. Um, they're worried about Quakers. They're worried about levellers. Um, and Cromwell's sort of almost the first kind of um, the first agent of that. I think the moment where, ironically, Cromwell's rule um, kind of falls is um, is when he refuses the crown. Um, and the the point between that, the point with that, is not that you know it would have gone back to a monarchy, but it would have it would have put sovereignty back in with the people rather than uh, with the army. And that and that then um, it becomes a kind of a, a sticking point. I mean, longer term, it, it certainly doesn't help that uh, that that he himself is a fairly unattractive character. You know, it, I mean, at the time he's much more. He's he's much more lambasted for the regicide than what yeah. he does in Ireland, but obviously longer term we we kind of you know we, we have a different view. But uh, he's also an upstart that doesn't help. And then of course you know by the end of the 17th century there's a sort of there's there's a sort of nice constitutional fudge I think where you you have a monarchy but it's basically not particularly powerful. And I think that manages to be something which the English political nation can then work with into the 18th century. So uh, you know as much as it it might seem like a missed opportunity. Actually, a lot of the things that people wanted in the 1650s, they eventually kind of got in the 1690s. Jonathan Healy, the book is absolutely illuminating and very zippily written. I enjoyed it enormously. It helped me finally make sense of Neil Stevenson's Baroque cycle, which is set at the same time. Uh, and I felt my, my historical background there really let me down. Um, but it's fantastic. So thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this edition of The Bunker. If you did like it and you want us to carry on making podcasts like these, then please consider paying a small tithe, perhaps three guineas a month, via Patreon so that we can continue the good old cause of independent podcasting to coffee houses as far afield as Southwark and St. Giles. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast on your handheld arithmetical engine to discover more. Thank you for listening. Hail the new Puritan. God be with you. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, 
John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Daily was written and presented by Andrew Harrison. The producer was Cash Tomashevich and the lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. The audio producer was me, Jay Bailey, and our music is by Kenny Dickinson. The group editor is Andrew Harrison and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.